0: Hi, good day, and welcome to About Patterson, a podcast about the past, present, and future of our hometown, Patterson, New Jersey. As all Pattersonians know, Patterson was founded by our first Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, in 1791. Hamilton's vision for Patterson was as America's first planned industrial city, but even Hamilton couldn't have seen what Patterson would become. Patterson led the Industrial Revolution where Sam Colt manufactured his first revolvers, John Ryle manufactured America's first silk, Thomas Rogers built the first American locomotives, and John Holland tested the world's first modern submarine. But Patterson isn't just about the Industrial Revolution, it's about us, the people of Patterson. It's about our parents, our grandparents, and our great-grandparents who came to America and settled in Patterson for a better life. We all know Patterson today isn't the Patterson we grew up in, but something is happening that no one saw coming. After decades of decline, a miracle happened. Two Pattersonians, former Mayor Bill Pascrell in the House of Representatives and Frank Lautenberg in the United States Senate, passed a bill that was signed by President Barack Obama, making our Great Falls District a national park, and in my view, changed Patterson's future for the better. This is a podcast about Patterson, the historic Patterson we learned about, the Patterson we grew up in, and the Patterson that, in my opinion, is emerging from the ashes. So thanks so much for joining me today. Welcome, and thanks for joining me today for part five of the Reuben Carter, John Artis, and the Lafayette Grill Murders, Just the Facts. Today we're going to discuss the first book Reuben Carter wrote, after being convicted of the triple homicide at the Lafayette Grill on June 17, 1966. I guess it took a while for Carter to decide to write a book because it wasn't published until he had served nearly 10 years in prison. His book, The 16th Round, written while he and artists were serving their time, was published in 1974 by Viking Press. Bob Dylan, The Man of a Thousand Causes was so inspired by Carter's story that he wrote a song entitled Hurricane. The 19-verse song includes a chorus that says, Here comes the story of the hurricane. The man authorities came to blame for something that he never done, put in a prison cell, but one time he could have been the champion of the world. As any boxing fan who followed Carter's rise in the middleweight ranks knows that's simply not true. Reuben Carter faced the middleweight champion Joey Giardello in December 1964 and lost that fight. In his next 15 fights between December 64 and the murders in June of 1966, Carter lost seven, nearly half of his fights. He never even got a chance for a second fight for the championship much less could have been champion of the world. As to the man who authorities came to blame for something that he never done, the evidence Dylan didn't bother to look into and the two juries Dylan ignored came to a different conclusion. But we have to give Carter credit. That book and news reporters and celebrities who ignored the evidence of the case that convicted Carter and Artis did get them released and a second trial. The first half of Carter's book centers around his childhood. We covered a lot of that in Part 4. Today we're going to examine why the New York Times and so many celebrities were influenced to get both Carter and artists freed. For those of us who lived through the 1960s, we can attest that that decade into the 1970s were among the most turbulent times in American history. There's way too much information to include in this podcast, so I'm only going to reference the civil rights movement, both nationally and, of course, in Patterson. I think I became aware of Dr. Martin Luther King in 1964 when he won the Nobel Peace Prize. Between then and the nonviolent demonstrations he led until his death in 1968, the news reported so many what were called uprisings that the whole country was at least aware of the rabid racism of the South and the more subtle racism of the North. We learned the names of George Wallace and Bull Connor. Wallace, a staunch segregationist governor who said in his inaugural address that he was for segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. And, and everyone seen the videos of police dogs under Bull Connor's leadership attack demonstrators. It was a hateful time and a stain on our national history. In Patterson, there was the riot of 1964 that exposed the racial tensions of the city, and there would be more in the coming years, especially after the assassination of Dr. King. In Carter's book, The 16th Round, Carter claimed both he and artists were convicted only because they were black. From the time he was nine years old, right up until the triple homicide, Carter believed he was being persecuted because he was black. The whole theme of the book is racism, racism, racism. And of course there was racism in Patterson, but the truth and the evidence is what convicted Carter and Artis twice. Carter wrote the 16th round with the help of Linda Yablinsky, who he credited as his editor. At the end of the 16th round, Carter wrote, Now the only chance I have is in appealing directly to you, the people, and showing you the wrongs that have yet to be righted, the injustice that has been done to me. I have to think even Carter was surprised that his appeal worked as well as it did. Many people believe the book, including a New York Times reporter by the name of Selwyn Rabb and a whole host of celebrities. Of course, no one is going to write a book condemning themselves, It was a book intended to persuade people of his innocence. Some of it is truth, but a lot of it is what became known as the Carter myth, and sadly that myth was hammered home by the fictitious movie Hurricane, starring starring Denzel Washington. The movie convinced moviegoers that the two men were wrongly convicted of a crime they didn't commit. Those myths were so strong that they appeared in both men's obituaries years later. Among the stories that Carter told in the 16th round were that he claimed to be a paratrooper who had earned his wings. This is false. He also claimed to be the Army's middleweight boxing champion, and this has been easily disproven. All in all, Carter's military career was a dismal failure, and he was dishonorably discharged in just 18 months. The truth is he used the Army to hide from the police after escaping from prison. Probably the biggest lie is, of course, about race. His claim that he was involved in the civil rights movement is false. There's not a single news report or a person who can say Carter ever did anything for civil rights before or during his boxing career. In the 16th round, Carter says he and Artis passed their lie detector test, quoting the examiner in his book. They're both clean. They had nothing to do with the case. This is simply not true. The examiner's report stated both Carter and Artis were deceptive. The problem with lie detector tests is they're not admissible in court as evidence. On the day of the crime, Simone only had the lie detector results and the identification of the getaway car, which were both circumstantial evidence and not enough to hold them, so they were released. Carter asserted in the 16th round that Patricia Graham Valentine suddenly remembered of new events four months after the June 17th murders and that these events got Carter and Artis arrested four months later. This is simply not true. Carter and Artis were arrested four months later because Alfred Bello and Dexter Bradley identified Carter and Artis as the gunmen who came out of the Lafayette Grill a few minutes after they heard the shots. What was new was that Bello didn't want to confess that at the time of the murders, he and Dexter Bradley were committing a burglary two blocks from the Lafayette Grill. At the time, Bello was on parole. Obviously, breaking and entering would have been a parole violation. Bello himself said that that's the reason he didn't speak up and identify Carter and Artis sooner. Carter badly needed an alibi for the time of the murders. He contacted two women. One a girlfriend, Catherine McGuire, and her mother, Anna Mapes, to testify that at 2.30 a.m. on the night of the 17th, he was driving them home from the night spot. Interestingly, there's a letter Carter sent from prison to the women thanking them for the alibi, but the prosecution was able to show that that drive home was not on the night of the murders. Carter had no alibi for 2.30 a.m. on June 17th. The 16th round held some truths about the racism of the day and Carter's hatred for white authority. I suggest that you read the book. It's not only Carter's defense, but a very revealing book about who Reuben Carter was in his very own words. The book came out in 1974, published by Viking Press, a very prestigious publishing company. At the same time, other people were looking into the Carter artist case, one of whom was New York Times reporter named Selwyn Rabb, who wrote a series of articles questioning the verdict reached in the first trial and stating that Alfred Bellow and Dexter Bradley, the two eyewitnesses who identified Carter and artist at the Lafayette Grill, had recanted their testimony. On Saturday, September 28, 1974, Selwyn Rabb wrote in the New York Times, New Carter trial sought. Mr. Bradley, who was 30 years old, said he had falsely identified Mr. Carter at the trial in return for a lenient sentence on robbery charges he was facing at the time. Mr. Bellow, also 30, said he had been brainwashed by the Passaic detectives, but that he had hoped to capitalize on the $10,500 reward for the capture of the two gunmen. Lead detective Vincent de Simone did make an agreement with Dexter Bradley. Both Bellow and Bradley were critical as the only two eyewitnesses to identify Carter and Artis as the two men that left the Lafayette Grill immediately after the shootings. In de Simone's book, Media Meddlers, de Simone wrote, I had made two promises to Bradley before the trial one that we would arrange to have him kept away from the prison population to protect him from the retaliation he feared from Carter's connections. The other was that I would make it known to prosecutors of counties that where charges were pending against him that Bradley had been a key state witness in a triple homicide case. It was a good deal for justice to trade off a lighter sentence for Bradley and protection for Bellow, in exchange for the conviction of two triple murderers. In 1968, DeSimone did get Dexter Bradley transferred to Bordentown Reformatory for for a three-to-five-year sentence, far better than the state prison. This is standard procedure in any homicide case, waiving or at least mitigating lesser charges for the greater good. Now, there's way too much detail that would occur in the coming months to include here, I encourage you to read a book by lead detective Vincent De Simone called "Media Meddlers: The Real Truth About the Murder Case Against Reuben Hurricane Carter." It's not a massive book; no one wants to read. It's not overly detailed. It's a little bit over 300 pages of the evidence that convicted both Carter and artists twice. Selwyn Rabb would continue to write articles in the New York Times and quite naturally the New York TV stations picked up the story saying tonight we can report that new developments strongly suggest that Carter may be innocent. It's still shocking to me that national news organizations would report such a thing without any investigation and many of them jumped on the bandwagon offering misleading information that still today sways some of the people to think that Carter and Artis were innocent. Interestingly, one newspaper that apparently knew the facts was the Herald News in Clifton. They wrote in an editorial suggesting there is much more evidence that convicted Carter and Artis than the two witnesses. The convictions depended on much more than the testimony of two recanters. they said. The two witnesses were presented at the trial as thieves. Judge Larner told Carter at the sentencing that although Carter still protested his innocence, he had received a full and fair trial and that the verdict was fully warranted. In late 1974, the Hurricane Carter Trust Fund Committee was formed. Muhammad Ali, World Heavyweight Boxing Champion, was named co-chairman of a committee made up of Johnny Cash, Harry Belafonte, Burke Reynolds, Henry Aaron, Jimmy Breslin, Gay Talese, and and, and numerous others. The goal was to raise $250,000. To add a jersey angle to the fundraising effort, Muhammad Ali asked a personal friend named Carolyn Kelly. Kelly was a 41-year-old Newark, New Jersey Muslim woman who owned a bail bonds company. He asked her to join the effort to free Carter and Artis. Carol and Kelly met with Carter in the New Jersey State Prison a number of times and came to the conclusion that he that she believed that the that he was innocent of the triple homicide because of racial prejudice. She closed her bond business and became. Uh, the leading fundraising force in New Jersey, and incorporated the New Jersey Defense Committee for Reuben Hurricane Carter and John Artis. Press releases were sent out. A fundraiser at Madison Square Garden was scheduled for December 1975, and numerous newspapers and national magazines jumped on the bandwagon professing the innocence of the two men. Kelly worked for a year organizing and fundraising for Carter and artists. After a year of working to get a new trial, Carter was released on bail in March of 1976. Now here's where the story takes a really weird turn. On April 30, 1976, Carter and Carol and Kelly were staying in separate rooms at the Ramada Inn at the Annapolis, in Annapolis, Maryland for the Muhammad Ali-Jimmy Young fight. There's some dis- there was some dispute about Mrs. Kelly's room bill, and she called Carter on the phone to ask him about it. He cursed her out and hung up on her two times. Mrs. Kelly assumed that he didn't recognize her voice and went to Carter's room. Once inside, Carter blocked her exit and punched the 61-year-old woman and then after she fell to the floor, he kicked her into unconsciousness. Kelly was in the hospital in traction for a month. I believe this was first reported by a personal friend of Miss Kelly in the Philadelphia Daily Press in what I would call an abbreviated form. Chuck Stone, a writer for the Philadelphia Daily News, revealed in his article a conversation he had with Carol and Kelly from her hospital bed while she was still in traction. She told Stone, Reuben beat me and tried to kill me. In painstaking detail, Miss Kelly recited how Carter attacked her, and as she lay on the floor in agony, Carter sat on her, choking her. There's also articles written by Paul Mulshine in the Newark Star-Ledger. These are well worth Googling. The title of the uh, articles are Media Missed the Real Story, of the late Hurricane Carter. You can Google it. The second trial began in November 1976. This time the prosecution presented the jury with a possible motive. The murder earlier on the night of the Lafayette Grill triple homicide of the black owner of the Waltz Inn by the previous white owner of the bar. This was presented as the motive for the grill murders. This time, there would be two blacks on the jury. Alfred Bello recanted his recantation that he saw Carter and Artis leaving the Lafayette Grill and get into a white Dodge Polara with out-of-state plates and speed away. Equally damaging to Carter and Artis was Patricia Valentine, who testified what she saw from her apartment window. Once again, the jury found the two men guilty, and they were returned to prison. Thanks for joining me today. I believe there will be just one final uh, podcast on Reuben Carter, John Artis, and the Lafayette Grill murders. This final podcast will be about the state of New Jersey deciding not to retry the case. Next week, I'm going to tell the story of the seven young men who recovered John Holland's first boat, what Pattersonians call the Holland One, from the Passaic River mud in 1927. This is something my father witnessed when he was just eight years old and is one of those stories that sparked my passion for Patterson history and many years later these podcasts. Thanks again for joining me. See you next week.